0: Many of the drugs that we use were not developed for glioblastoma. They are developed for breast, lung, colon, whatever cancer, and we're trying them in glioblastoma because that's all we have. During my training at Dana-Farber and uh, here in California, we, we did develop a drug that hits the Achilles heel, the cancer stem cells of glioblastoma, and i um, excited to say after oh. nine years of working on it, it's going, we just got our uh, phase one uh, IND approved, so I'm, Super excited that we'll be able to do clinical trials on it uh, later this year. That's like was designed specifically for glioblastoma based on an understanding of glioblastoma, stem cell biology.
1: So if you're on social or news media at all, you've probably heard about these stories of these like brain cancers and, and brain tumors that are popping up, right? There's that high school in New Jersey that everyone's talking about on TikTok. Why are there so many people that graduate from there having brain tumors and not unfortunately dying young? And then you have the Phillies that are talking about the stadium possibly causing brain tumors as well. There's not a lot of things we know that may increase your chance as a risk for exposure with brain tumors. But if there is, who else better to discuss it with than Dr. Santosh Kasari, who is basically just an insane, you know, forefather when it comes to neuro oncology and brain cancer stuff and brain tumor stuff and and hopefully really changing the way we treat brain tumors because right now we're not very good at it. It's a stubborn thing. It's like very, you know, challenging with all of its mechanisms and unfortunately the brain is a place you can't go, you know, picking around at. So I'm very excited to have Santos. He's basically what I call a pan director, but specifically, he's a director of neurooncology at the Pacific uh, Neuroscience Institute uh, of Providence, St. John's Health Center. Um, he also has uh, leadership roles with translational um, research. He graduated from UPenn. He's been regarded as one of the top 1% of neurooncologists uh, and neurologists in the nation. He's both a neurologist and a neuro oncologist. So, where do you start with someone like Dr. Santos Kasari? Well, the first question I asked him was, these stories about the baseball players in this high school, do we think there's something really there that is like, Oh man, that's the thing. That's a big cause for why they're having these brain tumors.
0: Yeah. Um, I read, uh, the article and obviously there's a lot of data and information missing from it, but it is unusual, uh, to have, um, uh, such a, a high number of patients, uh, in the same area develop a particular type of brain tumor, uh, but I think I think an investigation is starting, and that's appropriate. Over the decades, there have been various uh, associations with the uh, environmental factors. You know, there's been reports of um, airplane pilots having increased risk of brain tumors, firefighters increased risk of colon cancer and uh, brain tumors as well. So it's hard to really tease out uh, what what is real or not until a Really formal epidemiological study can be done, and I and I believe they're doing some radiation uh, assessments uh, to see if maybe the radiation exposure is higher in that school or that community compared to the to the other places. So I think yeah, it's that's- something that needs to be you know reviewed and assessed, and we'll see what they find.
1: Yeah, and I think I, th- I think that's what caught my attention is like with firefighters, you're breathing in smoke. You know, in the south, you know, they call it the Bible Belt, but also the cancer belt. They're like, is it diet? Is it, you know, a lot of the industrial stuff? But those, again, you get this kind of, like, exposure of your normal cells. And when they replicate, they get little damages, right, with pollutants and things that just kind of mess up the DNA and allow it to all of a sudden go rogue, escape your immune system. So at least, like, in, you know, in conceptual way, that makes sense. I think the thing that's really tripping people up about the central nervous tumor is, like, really short of radiation, which makes sense because then you're having, like, a direct... Uh, exposure, and we don't mean just like the UV rays from the sun, we mean something that's actually, that, you know, penetrates and go on to, on, goes onto that tissue because again, you, need, you usually need something to invite something bad, like a, a cancer and those mutations, and that's what makes it unique. We know that if you got treated with radiation, like you were, you know, attacking something in childhood, then you're killing those kind of like bad cells, but then you have some collateral damage, like, you know, aptly named. And then so, sure, those make sense, but but that part is weird. And there's also a story um, about baseball players kind of having the similar thing. Is Again, what is it about this, otherwise really this blood-brain barrier and the sanctuary and how it's different systemically, which is good and bad. Sometimes it's protected, but sometimes it makes us hard to treat as oncologists to get in there because it's a sanctuary. That was also what was concerning when it comes to these uh, baseball players. I think there were six now, right? That has like some kind of brain tumor, central nervous thing.
0: Yeah, again, a more recent story of, oh, but over several decades, of the Philadelphia Phillies, and they were in the old veteran stadium, and they were using apparently radar guns to track certain things, and that might have also caused um, an increased exposure to radiation. Again, it's a hypothesis. Uh, It's not really clear that it's really causing that. The the, the difficulty is that these exposures, whether it's cell phone, there's been a lot of data (laughs) about cell phone exposure and causing um, various types of Cancers, uh, from brain tumors to parotid tumors, uh, but um, a radiation exposure from the from the environment um, and a certain uh, closeness to facilities, uh, water, or electrical uh, devices or radiation, um, nuclear power plants, things like that. But it, it's really something that uh, needs to be explored, and uh, there's been really no definitive. Um, Uh, causes uh, uh, links rather Uh, but mainly because it takes like 10 20 30 years from the exposure to the time you get a problem and that's why it's difficult to make these associations for instance the cell phones of 20 30 years ago were much more powerful than they are now and we're using a lot of wireless and speakerphone so it's hard to even see the effect anymore if there was an effect Uh, there's various studies that showed especially in in Europe, in the Scandinavian countries, where they had good public health records of a causal or epidemiological association between exposure time and uh, uh, certain types of uh, tumors.
1: So you were saying it takes like you know 20, 30 years to really see if that exposure causes a tumor or a cancer. And if I understand it correctly, the the reason is that for that is because you need the exposure but then you need like a true perfect storm and series of events to really fall in just the wrong places to then enable and liberate the regular cell right whether it's central nervous or not to turn into cancer and i think that's what makes it challenging but to um to your point you were saying that you know cell phones the power was more in the past is it true like is there data to support that using cell phones does in some form cause cancer, like today. Is there is there is there statistically significant, I guess, data? Or is that something just still under investigation?
0: There was old epidemiological data that suggested an increased incidence uh, in certain populations such that had good public health records, such as in the Scandinavian countries. And it was associated with acoustic uh, schwannomas, as mm. well as primary brain tumors, uh, gliomas, and, uh, parotid gland tumors, um, and there was a laterality and a lot of other variables uh, that seem to suggest that the association was pretty strong. But many other studies didn't show an association, and over the years, obviously, cell phones have uh, gotten less uh, energy, and uh, we're not uh, holding them to our head anymore. We're using the speakerphone or, or wireless or, or uh, 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 headphones, mm-hmm. so that epidemiology may not hold up Uh, And and certainly we haven't seen an increased incidence uh, of brain tumors over the years outside of age-related increase. As we age, we tend to get all kinds of cancers. And uh, we know the reasons for that. Um, uh, Our immune system gets weaker. We tend to get more uh, genetic uh, mutations build up over time. And as we age, we're at increased risk of cancer. So that's really the reason why we're um, we see more numbers of cancer patients than in the past, but not necessarily an increase in incidence uh, at any one age group. That makes sense.
1: So let me ask you point blank. Has, have, do you personally, or did you used to kind of avoid putting the phone up to your ear, yeah. just being the wizard that you are in the neurologic, onco- oncologic world?
0: Yeah, certainly, I, you know, the, you can't ignore the data and you can't ignore the concerns. Uh, so, yeah, for, for my, you know, my, my kids are teenagers now when back then, about 10, 12, 15 years ago, we definitely uh, were concerned and avoided all kinds of uh, radiation uh, emitting devices, in particular cell phones, uh, usage in our kids or limited the usage. Um, yeah so I, for sure you know, there, there's so many environmental things that um you know obviously diet is important right for a lot of uh medical conditions not just cancer development uh so there's a lot of things to know understand and uh, uh prevent uh, in terms of the prevention part of the uh, health that we can do better to prevent cancers in the future
1: yeah and kind of speaking on the same note Ever since I heard this, I wish I didn't because it's just kind of really messed with me and just adds to the anxiety and stress that I have kind of day-to-day about all these other things. Which does lead me to having less sleep. So the question is, or what I was told was, when you sleep, and this is a very, you know, layman way of putting it, but it's almost like an oil change for your cerebral spinal fluid. And basically, it's like, it's like, a, it's like a cleanse. I'm going on, a, on an all, you know, fluid diet cleanse. And that apparently, true sleep and deep REM is the only circumstance that really helps that exchange of toxins and kind of maybe permeate out of the central nervous system. So ever since I learned that, I'm always like, am I really just making myself an increased risk of a neurotumor because, you know, I don't get into that deep REM kind of wash cycle. Is that at all accurate to any
0: effect? No, you explained it perfectly because that's only in the last 5, 10 years we've understood the importance of sleep and the in importance of detoxification of the brain basically. So lying down and sleep uh, is helpful for clearing all the toxic metabolites that build up in your brain, much like, you know, urine is for blood, as uh, if you don't, you know, that is clearing your blood basically of toxins and other things to keep homeostasis. Likewise, That's in the why brain, you require dialysis, right? Yeah. Like you, have, you have to get rid of the toxins, otherwise it messes everything up. Exactly. And in the brain, there is constant dialysis going on, actually. Uh, the, the blood goes to the brain, CSF is made, and uh, amyloid uh, and all these bad players are cleared. Uh, and so sleep and maybe uh, reclining and a variety of the factors are important uh, for clearing these toxins in the brain that build up... Uh, uh, when we don't sleep at, uh, adequately,
1: my mom will be very happy, and she—I think she needed me to hear this. And I maybe shouldn't have asked because I'd always was in the back of my brain. Pun kind of intended. So I think that is a really big stimulus, though, for me to sleep better. Because I mean, let's be honest: when you don't, when you don't have that, you know, oil change, it does lead to true like depression and worse headaches, and then. Obviously, the central nervous system is like the mainframe computer major database to like for your perceptions of pain um, in your muscles and having these what we call myalgia. All of that stuff, you know, is neuronal. And so if you're not cleansing that, then I could see how that would be legitimately problematic. And that's why I stress to sleep apnea patients, too. They're like, well, I feel okay," And I'm like, if you sleep apnea, you need that deep REM, whether you know you're sleeping or not. You know, it's just so much more than like just how you feel. And, and And the evidence is showing that from what it sounds like you're saying.
0: Well, it's not. It's not just for your brain health. It's also for your whole oh, body. 100
1: other, yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. Cardiovascular, yeah. I mean, all the things
0: for sure. And probably immune health. I, mean, I suspect everything's everything to me. As after doing this for twenty plus years, I loved immunology in medical school, but now I realize the real importance of immunology in all aspects of our body. Every single organ system. There is a huge role for the immune system in terms of uh, maintaining health and also causing all the problems that we have, whether it's cancer, cardiovascular disease, or dementia.
1: Oh, it's, I mean, it's extraordinary. I remember when I first got on social media, everyone would be like, it's all about your immunity. We just need to boost that up. And I'm like, why are we just saying all immunity? It's not that simple. It, it is in a very broad way. Like, but the problem is, people, you know, it's it's very difficult to appreciate how complicated. The immune system is like it has an entire network. You don't just take like an immune booster because what does that mean? Is it the neutrophils from the bone marrow? Is it lymphocytes that fight cancer? Is it antiox? I mean, there's just so much involved into it. But, but I love that we are obviously going to immuno oncology and I know you have work and experience there. And so it's, it, it's a whole thing, but it's something that needs to be in some way revered or, or respected to the degree of saying you can't understand it overnight. I mean, you need it's truly academic and complicated. Now, um, When I read this story about uh, that high school in New Jersey where, you know, a lot of people were coming down with these brain tumors, whether it was cancerous or non-cancerous or glioblastoma, my theory, without looking at anything else, I was like, you know, I know there's not a lot of exposures, occupational or whatever behavioral that that influence that sanctuary that is the central uh, nervous system compared to just smoking and all these other things that, that occur elsewhere. So my first thought was... Is it possibly, possible that if it's in a remote place and it's a high school that catches all the entire community that they have one of those inherited mutations, right? So we talked about risk factors, but obviously one of the biggest ones are, are inherited. But I need to say that by saying that cancers by far are not passed down to you or germline or inherited and stuff. I know a lot of people say, I don't have to worry about cancer under my screening because I don't have it in my family history. It is like almost, I mean, 85% plus you know, 90%, especially when you get older towards retirement, is something that happened in your lifetime. That perfect storm happened in your lifetime. However, we know that there are things that are kind of unique when it comes to kind of stranger, you know, more atypical things like glioblastomas, sarcomas. And so I, I looked it up. I said, what's the population? There's a kind of rural area, maybe, you know, you just, even if it's a couple of degrees of separation, you can just carry these these mutations, right?
0: Yeah, so the hereditary component of cancer and other diseases is uh, also underappreciated, actually. And in this new generation of uh, sequencing, where we're sequencing all cancer patients uh, to find targets to treat them, we're finding some very interesting results. So the old school way of uh, doing genetic testing is to ask the patient, a cancer patient, any family history of cancers. And you go through a detailed, uh, with a genetic counselor, detailed family history, and only if they meet certain criteria, then you do one test. You know, that was B- it. B- those 50, the metric. BRCA, yes. things like that. But now when we're doing uh, cancer sequencing, we are actually getting data on uh, the uh, mutations at the genetic level of the person, not the cancer are being identified in many of these cases. And it instead of like less than 1% of cancer patients having a hereditary component, there's at least two or three uh, abstracts in the past year or two, and many, many publications as well have documented like in, in the general population of cancer patients that it can be anywhere from five to 15% of cancer patients. There's a genetic underlying mutation that's of relevant as a a hereditary mutation that has implications to the rest of the family in terms of testing and screening and so on. So I think because we're screening so broadly and not just doing one single gene based on a detailed family history, we are identifying that, in fact, the genetic component is much larger than we previously thought. Probably still in the 10 to 15% range, not uh, super large, much bigger than we thought like the 1% yeah yeah and uh, and this has a lot of implications for targeted treatments response and then if you think about the the other revolution in genetics is looking at everything else and how pharmacogenetics affects uh, response to drug metabolism of the drugs that we give Um, and then you know then you get into the microbiome and everything else that can predict uh, predisposition to cancer but also response to treatments of various sorts that we're using whether it's chemo radiation targeted therapy or immunotherapy we're identifying the underlying cancer genetics as well as the person's genetics have a huge uh, underpinning to a variety of outcomes uh, in, in, so we're learning a lot because we're 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 testing a lot in our patients these days and we're getting so many insights and the and and the science we just can't keep up really in many situations to the vast amounts of data that we're generating, um, but you know people who can understand it and take advantage of uh, of, of the those findings can maybe potentially improve uh, treatment response as well as um, uh, you know identify a genetic disorder that maybe the family wasn't aware of that would have some preventative implications
1: right and so you know that's an important point because before you know say we knew something works in a lab we're like okay it works in mice models we give it it kills the thing effectively and we give it to you know x number of people and it's working and all in in some subsets even though the tumor looks the same we're like why isn't it working why aren't we having the same response and in other ones we're like why is it so you know profound and so the people that don't know we are testing what's called germline mutations germline means it's like something the coding was already there when you were a tiny little fetus you had that coding some of them are good you know, some of them are, are not so good. One example I use is what, like basically like a, a home run. We were talking about baseball earlier. I don't love it because it's not a home run. You're not trying to get to home base. But it's it's literally how many bases are you along to get if the home run plate was bad and it was a cancer cell. That inherited mutation doesn't will you to necessarily have cancer, but you're already one step. So if, if I incur one for colorectal cancer at thirty, it's like you're already at that base. Doesn't mean necessarily that you're going to end up there, but but you've accelerated the process, which, as we know, are just this perfect is this perfect storm of of you know less than favorable mutations. So that's germline. That's like what you were given this little fetus, like I said. Now somatic <laughs> means, say you know for. A little inaccuracy, but say your cells are all fine. They're they're coded exactly the way the Statue of David would have been coded, which I hear his framework actually wasn't even ideal. But I hope that the metaphor is not lost. If it was perfect that way, then somatic means these series of mutations happen over time. And then, um, and then you have these mutations that are just inherent to the uh, cancer cells, the properties of the cells that ended up having their own little, you know, rogue. Uh, kind of evolution in the body and escape the immune system. So that's the difference. And now with germline, we realize, hey, I think it does dictate how we treat things. Like we got all excited about BRCA positivity germline and then like, and platinum drugs, right? And breast cancer. And then now we're looking at, you know, BRCA-like mutations, including BRCA, which is hereditary recombinant DNA impairment, or basically HRD. You look at it in ovarian cancer and that actually qualifies you to get therapy, a PARP inhibitor. And that can be whether it's germline or somatic. So we're realizing, we're teasing all these things. So when people ask, you know, well, how come we have not cured cancer yet? Like, it's like, that's what happens. We're like, we're, we're so just like, you know, confident when you take it in mice models and then you realize there's all these other factors, epigenetic um, and and what series of things you have that are, or are not favorable, right?
0: First of all, we're, billions of cells are dividing in our body. And as they divide, there's an extremely small percentage of errors that are made in the DNA replication but when you have billions of cells dividing every day, as you can imagine, the, the, even though it's 0.0001% of an error, some cells are gonna have a lot of, uh, of significant errors that are not corrected. And then that could initiate the initial process of cancer. And, um, and you know I, I think as you discussed before, sometimes the immune system, when it's healthy, can detect it and get rid of it, especially when you're young, but over time, as we age, the immune system ages as well. And those mutations start to take on more mutations and then can cause cancer and escape the immune system. Now, uh, the, there are certain mutations, such as the one you mentioned, BRCA, uh, that are significant and, and really implicate specific types of treatments, like, like the platinums or the PARP inhibitors. And then, but in heart cancers like glioblastoma, you know, we see some of those same mutations, but patients don't respond. And the, the reality is um, these tumors are very heterogeneous, meaning it's really not one mutation. They're, they're, these malignant, hard-to-treat tumors uh, are not so simple. They have multiple mutations, multiple things going wrong in them so that, you know, they evade the immune system. They, they just grow out of control, and they really adapt to, to be very aggressive. Um, so even though we have many cases of, uh, of patients who respond to targeted therapies uh, because they have a mutation that's really significant, what we call a driver mutation, uh, there are many other mutations along uh, that go along that uh, can also contribute to resistance uh, to a certain treatment. So what I'm saying is, it, it's, cancer is very complex, and it's also very individualized uh, because, one person, may, uh, one person with one mutation may respond to an EGFR inhibitor, for instance, but another person with the same EGFR inhib- uh, uh, mutation may not respond because they also have 10 other mutations that make them resistant for one reason or another. So what we're learning um, individually in every single patient that we see in our clinic, when we do this profiling, we're finding all kinds of mutations. And I think eventually, uh, although we see single-agent responses when we add a targeted drug to a particular patient, the, the reality is we probably need to figure out how to do better combination treatments that are going to really hit it hard because most patients, at least in glioblastoma and many other hard-to-treat tumors, don't have just one driver mutation or one really important mutation. We need to have combination approaches. And that's, at least in GBM, that's what I think about is how, how can we do better With combination approaches uh, and how can we um, figure out which combinations are going to work when you have 10 mutations right
1: i think you know that's full of metaphors but that is what makes it challenging like there's what we also call you know escape mechanisms so that means if you put some pressure on something right if you're playing sports and you decide you know, if Shaq is on his team by himself, you're going to say, we're just going to neutralize Shaq, it would be fine. Okay, that's fine. But what happens when they all, you know, get a little older and they all start coming together to get the ring? Now it does not suffice. You can still have the same strategy. But then his buddy Kobe, rest in peace, like, still think about that. It was very troubling. But then he'll have his buddy, you know, Kobe Bryant or whoever he played with, like, then adapt. And so that's what you're doing. You're trying to neutralize the escape mechanisms of the pressure you're putting. Shaq's team will be good if you can't neutralize him. You find it you get excited but then he has other players that either come on board in the season and stuff and then start coming out and it it sounds almost like offensively simple in that regard but that's the truth but they have a bunch of them right or it's like it's like the reason Sabin or belichick just keeps winning like they know they can adapt they can have a plan at the beginning and then they just at halftime they say these are the things that we're going to do to one exploit the other team on their weak side. So that's escaping the immune system or even monopolizing the environment to make it favorable. So you're ex- exploiting the thing that uh, that you sense as weakness. And then the other side is, and this is how they're hurting us. So we're gonna execute X, Y, and Z so that it's rendered ineffective. And so you really have to be prepared uh, in this kind of multimodality approach um, to do that. And and you know a lot of experts, um, I certainly consider you one, you know, say that that is the future. It, the future of a cure for cancer is really hard to say. A future for anytime soon of curing all cancer is really hard to say. But being able to die with cancer and not die from cancer and having a cocktail of, you know, uh, treatments or medications that hopefully aren't systemic chemos and are all targeted. That seems like a, a plausibility, is you take this cocktail, you know, if so you have herpes, you take a acyclovir, and you have no detectable, you know, viral load, and, and HIV even, you have these couple of medications. Same kind of concept, which is adequately just, you know, attack it literally on all ends, and then hopefully it just either stays at bay or just never, you know, appears with minimal toxicity, right? And so that's the that's the ideal goal, but in your beautiful... Um, in your beautiful metaphor about the billions of cells and the 0.0001% that escapes the mutation, that's why surgery is still and will always, you know, be the way to really cure, right? You find that colony early enough before it develops the mechanism to throw an anchor or a fishing line and then escape and get in the blood vessels and lymphatics and spread. And before all that stuff happens, if you could take it out, take out, you know, liberally the surrounding tissue, that's always, probably, always going to be your best shot, no matter how many billions of dollars we spend on targeted therapies.
0: Um, yeah, I, I, I uh, agree with that, except in the brain, we can't take out normal Sure, t- You can't take
1: out that. Yeah, exactly. You're nope. going for punishment. You <laughs> yeah. pick the hardest, the hardest tumor already by its inherent properties on why it's so bad, aggressive, and smart. And then you also pick the one that you
0: can't use the simplest, most definitive tools on, right? Why you do this to yourself, Dr. <laughs> Santosh? <laughs> Well, you know, when I I was in medical school, I really loved neuroscience and the brain. And uh, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, actually, I was thinking about neuroimmunology because I loved multiple sclerosis and autoimmune disorders. And, uh, but I thought, you know, uh, brain tumors was, you know, there was so much um, heartbreak and, you know, people just, you know, there's no good treatments at all. And I thought, this is something I want to do because I, I, I want to figure it out and uh, kind of motivated me to work hard to, to think about the disease and think about how, how to do better. You know, we made progress in the last two decades, but we still have a long way to go. And, um, you know, on that note, what I've been doing is thinking about, you know, innovative approaches. And one of the, my thoughts, um, maybe you'll agree with it, is that, you know, sometimes the, the, the hard guns that we use, right, surgery, radiation, and chemo, are needed because we don't have good other treatments, right? If you remember, and you know the story of uh, Gleevec for CML, a disease 20 years ago, everyone died within six months, and it was a driver mutation and clearly drove that disease, uh, BCR-ABLE, and Gleevec or imatinib was developed for that specific mutation, and those patients now have normal lifespans. Now that is the ideal goal, that's like the magic that we all hope that we can do for all of our cancers. And certainly for breast cancer, melanoma, colon cancer, many other cancers, we've identified similar mutations, developed targeted therapies, and have made amazing progress. Not on the scale of uh, uh, CML, but nonetheless, huge, huge advances. And in brain, yeah, like, like her two
1: positive, her two positive was like the worst thing. You would dread it because it's so aggressive. and now you're like, please be her two, because we found it, and we how to attack it. You know, yeah, it's yeah. more favorable but, than being negative.
0: Yeah, exactly. Her two was a marker of bad uh, outcomes, but when you figure it out and develop a drug for it, it's actually a marker of good outcomes. So you can change the whole. Perception of mar- whether it's a good marker or a bad marker, right? Good or
1: evil, yeah. That's like it, a big it. philosophical. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a big, yeah. Like you know, good over or man over whatever, because it's the same thing that like was ugly, and all of a sudden, like thank thank
0: you for like letting us know. That's crazy. So so let me give you another uh, example or two. So CNS lymphoma <laughs> is a one of our favorite brain tumors because we know we can actually essentially cure them. Okay. Right. In the old days, though because we didn't have good drugs, methotrexate at the standard dosing for systemic lymphoma just wasn't working. Uh, it wasn't, there wasn't enough penetration into the brain to kill the brain tumor. So back in the old days, we would actually resect a lymphoma, radiate a lymphoma, and everyone would die within a year or so. But when we figured out how to do high-dose methotrexate such that enough drug gets into the brain in CSF, and then able to manage the toxicities of course as well those patients respond amazingly well have well over five years survival these days and now with the immuno-oncology and newer drugs they survive obviously even much longer and the I mean that's like our favorite uh, brain tumor to see but very uncommon but nonetheless uh, n- nice to see those amazing responses and that's kind of the hope we have for glioblastomas now over the years we have seen amazing responses if you have a BRAF mutant brain tumor, glioma, those patients can respond very well to the same drugs that we use for melanoma, BRAF-MEC inhibitors. There's many, many examples of that uh, over the years. And I think even with EGFR in, inhibitors, we've seen responses over the years. So th- there is a lot of progress. Um, it's just the heterogeneity is, is fairly uh, vast in terms of the sporadic glioblastomas that we deal with. But now, compared to 10 years ago, and certainly 20 years ago, we have like hundreds of targeted therapies out there. We don't have enough time to test all of them, but we do need some big data science, you know, figure out what all these mutations each person has, and have an algorithm to say, these two drugs are going to be the best, or two, two, three, four drugs, are going to really work the best for this particular patient, and then identify and do trials uh, or or real-world type of experiments, because these are all available in the market, and, and certainly because our standard treatments don't do a good job. We, you know, many of us do um, uh, when we don't have trials, do a lot of off-label treatment based on those mutations, and you know, and we do see responders. I had a young kid, 16-year-old when I first saw her, who was on hospice, had a um, mutation that suggested response to a breast cancer drug, Everlimus. And she lived well over seven years uh, with just one drug. And we have many, many examples like that. So on an individual patient basis, we can see amazing effects, whether on a population, when we do a trial, we may not see it because we're not selecting based on the markers. Many of these trials still, in, at least in, in brain tumors, are very uh, immature still in terms of linking the biomarkers to a drug or a combination of drugs To have a potent effect. But the other real reason I I use the lymphoma example is that, you know, 20, 30 years ago, we would do surgery and radiation and then chemo, and then they would die, right, within a year. But now we do a biopsy. If we suspect lymphoma, we do a minimal biopsy, not a big craniotomy. And uh, once we diagnose a lymphoma, we give high-dose chemotherapy, targeted therapy, uh, uh, immunotherapy nowadays, but the tumor melts away, no radiation at all. And I think in glioblastoma, uh, we do have to do a res- resection because the tumors uh, are causing symptoms. But, you know, can we do something different? Um, and so my approach has been to do try neoadjuvant approaches, meaning, before the radiation, and this has been done in other cancer types, but also even in glioblastoma, mainly in the European um, countries. They've done many of these studies where you can give chemotherapy before radiation or combinations of treatment, and there was a reasonable response rate, not super high. Um, but with the, all the new drugs that we have, should we use that approach? And can we, uh, can we do that? And we've done a pilot study looking at uh, checkpoint inhibitors um, in the neoadjuvant approach, and we have some pretty interesting and durable responses in a subset of patients that is really getting us excited that this may be this kind of approach to doing clinical trials in glioblastoma may be the right approach in terms of accelerating uh, development. And the real reason is because when we do radiation, the tumor microenvironment changes. And so targeted therapy uh, or even immunotherapy becomes uh, very difficult uh, to, to see an effect, or, or the complications of our treatments is very hard to, to manage because of you know edema in the brain after radiation and chemotherapy. So, you know, we've been really trying to figure out how to do things better, and we have a pretty unique design that we're trying to do for all of our clinical trials and uh, with all the new drugs out there. Uh, But we do have to select patients at the same time. You can't just use the same combination of drugs on everyone. You have to actually select different combinations for different subsets of patients based on the markers.
1: And I think that's, that's what people, I think, may not appreciate, is that before, and all the data you look at backwards, like, man, we really haven't gotten a hold on this cancer thing. We literally took the tissue and just looked at it and said, okay, it's squamous cell or it's, or it's you know, small cell or adenocarcinoma, and really just tailored therapy to that in the tissue of origin. Now, of course, there's some other immunohistochemical stuff, IHC and stuff, yeah. but it was like histopathology. And if you're listening to this and you're saying... Whoa, you're telling me like, it's way past that and you actually sequence to see which of the tiny little switches and needles that go up, like when you're taking apart this crazy electronic device and you see all those things and you're just like really intimidated. That's what we're, we're inside the tissue and we're looking at all these things. Was it something you were born with? Was it something that wasn't in a lifetime? And you're asking yourself, how will we ever figure it out? My question would be, wouldn't it be faster if we all knew what was happening with, like, this series of, like, switches up and down this way, left, right, right, and then when drugs were given, right? That's what data, when we, when people studying cancer want to know data, they don't want to know, like, your social security number. They want to know what are all the constituents about your tumor and about you yourself and how do they play a role on what works and what doesn't work. And and then, you know, we have AI technology. You can figure out, you can do the algorithm and say, hey, there's a really good trend to not respond to this drug if you have, you know, X7974. And then you go look into it. And then what if that becomes a great thing because now we're exploiting that? So that's, that's the overall concept of data collection and moving that needle faster so that we can find these, like, what we understand to be very complicated uh, mechanisms on a cellular level. So when you hear sequencing, did you get it sequenced? Did you have, like, uh, uh, genomics? Did you have um, comprehensive, you know, uh, molecular testing? All these things you hear that are kind of almost dizzying with a cancer diagnosis, I'm sure, that means are we looking at all the kind of individual things that are being studied and can we make cocktails and basically have an influence on not losing time by giving something that doesn't work, etc. cetera. The other point is when you talk about GBM, glioblastoma, and you say that it's, you know, harder, it has so many, like, tools. Tell me if I'm wrong, but the way I think of it is, is you could go to, you know, like a, a, a handyman school or a handy person school and have everything, right? Hammers, nails, and and everything. But the more you go into your trade, you get kind of like better differentiated. So you have a couple of things to just do and perform what you need. And so that's what happens with the colon cells and these driver mutations that you're talking about that we can target. It's like they respond, it seems like to, you know, monotherapies or one single therapies to single targets better because they just kind of had more of a refined purpose. But the way I think of central nervous system cells, they're way up here. They're the entire toolbox, They're even in your, your garage. And so when something goes wrong there, You, I mean, you have such a bigger challenge because they still have all the sets of tools. They didn't, you know, you talk to even doctors they're like, I don't remember my internal medicine. I don't remember my intern year, you know, of like whatever before I became a dermatologist. You get more refined. Is that, does that make sense? Or is that accurate? Is that they just have a far greater and yet uh, ability to use tools to be able to escape and and be nasty? Or is it just that it's just hard to get there or even deliver
0: therapies? I think, I think, there's three main reasons. One is the, uh, the heterogeneity of GBM, the mutational load um, or complexity is above average compared to other tumor types. The, uh, the blood-brain barrier is probably the biggest thing in terms of drugs getting across the blood-brain barrier and having activity in the brain. So many of the drugs that we use were not developed for glioblastoma. They are developed for breast, lung, colon, whatever, cancer. And we're trying them in glioblastoma because that's all we have. Uh, you know, the pharmaceutical industry just hasn't uh, focused enough on developing new and specific agents, looking at the biological underpinnings of glioblastoma specifically. Uh, except, you know, I, we, you know, during my training at Dana-Farber and uh, when I was uh, uh, here in California, we, we did develop a drug that hits the Achilles heel, the cancer stem cells of glioblastoma and i um, excited to say after really? nine years of working on it, it's going, we just got our uh, phase one uh, IND approved. So w- I'm super excited that we'll be able to do clinical trials on it uh, later this year. But that's like was designed specifically for glioblastoma based on an understanding of glioblastoma stem cell biology. Hi, hi. Yeah. yeah, that's huge. We're super excited. It took nine years, but we're, we're getting there slowly. Uh, but we need to do more of that. There's actually other targets too. So we need, you know, scientists, uh, uh, pharmaceutical industry, and obviously other people to help think about medulloblastoma, glioblastoma, meningioma, and looking at what the specific drivers are and identifying targets and developing drugs for that, uh, for that particular disease and drugs that get into the brain as well. Because many of the, like the BRAF, MEK inhibitors, EGFR inhibitors, in the initial versions of all those. They would avoid uh, the compounds that went into the brain because they didn't want to deal with brain toxicity, right? So now brain, they, all these know. new generation, yeah, of EGFR, ALK, uh, ROS inhibitors that they purposely made them get into the brain, NTREC inhibitors, etc. Uh, they didn't exclude them, uh, so they they may have quite a bit of activity uh, in brain tumors um, if if they have that mu- mutation. So, but but the, you know the so the blood brain barrier is important. The other thing is when we do immunotherapy uh, in the lung or on the skin a little bit of inflammation you know we can tolerate a little rash little you know shortness of not shortness of breath but a little cough uh, when it gets severe you have to give steroids in the brain a little bit of inflammation still causes a lot of problems that's that's a real issue how do we manage the inflammation you can't have it too much and you don't want too little you want that perfect balance Um, And so we we are trying to figure that out. What what is the perfect balance of immune um, uh, therapy, uh, whether it's checkpoint inhibitors, personalized vaccines, or other drugs to have an effect and manage the toxicities optimally? Because a seizure or worsening neurological function, we end up giving steroids to control that. Uh, So the the tolerance level in brain is much i think much less than most other organs and that's why it's a little bit more complex and a little bit more thought has to be put into how to do immunotherapy in the brain to get to maximize the effect and reduce the toxicities you uh, know I
1: mean, in some way it's the way that chemo was first designed right side of chemo is like how much is too poisonous for the human body and all the organs but how much is enough to kill like to kill the cancer cells that replicate the fastest you're doing the same thing but on a whole nother way more like you know specific and intimate level and the challenge is, like you said earlier, you and I are similar skin tone, but your perfect little teetering, you know, perfect little balance may be different than mine. And then what about somebody on the other side of the planet? And then what about a female? And what? And so then you need, that's not you, that's your buddies then now that you have to work with to say, hey, this is what I found on this uh, on this side of things. But then what are the things that play a part into really even when I give it, if it's too much or too little?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's a very complex... Uh... Uh, thing to think about on a per patient level, uh, but this is where the pharmacogenomics and uh, all the right. testing that is becoming, even, you know, every baby that's born is getting their whole genome sequenced in the future, it's going to be part of your medical record, you're going to know your allergies before you even try something, right? You don't know you're right. allergic to something until you try it. The, no same,
1: yeah. the same
0: thing with drugs, you don't know whether the cancer is going to respond or not, or whether you're going to have a, a severe side effect or not, without looking at pharmacogenomics. And I think, so we're gonna have a blueprint in the future for all kinds of things that we can use, but it is about big data at the individual level, but also big data at the population level. And this is why I, uh, uh, I love being part of my hospital health system, Providence St. Joe's Health, because you know I'm doing my trial at one hospital, but I'm expanding to multiple hospitals in Southern California to, to provide patients in community settings access to the best and greatest that's trials right. that any academic medical center would have. And then if I and then as part of our, you know, 50 plus hospital system, if I can organize this network to provide high-level research level care at the community hospitals, we can accelerate drug development in a way that I could never have in the past. And that's really what's exciting. And you know, the fact that the genomics is expanding, the fact that we're getting all this data from everyone if the amount of data on an individual basis is so much you need a large population of patients to be able to to. out you know what the variables are that are significant for response or not and side effects etc so it's it is a really exciting time for for neuro-oncology for all of cancer and all a lot of medicine uh, in in terms of what we can understand from every patient and how we can learn um uh, about the individual heterogeneity and variation and and really optimizing you know the therapeutic benefit for each particular patient
1: so to the effect of accelerating everything as fast as you can all these complicated stuff that you talked about that you specifically are just moving mountains with at least or, or trying to get everyone on board to move the mountains with your pan director or chairman or or something of everything uh, out where you're at but one of those things is translational medicine and i've used this term before on previous podcasts but can you tell us in you know in the it's it's not
0: that simple
1: what is translation medicine? What do we mean right. when we say that's what we're looking into?
0: The network is important because, you know, brain tumors are not very common. And if I want to do a trial in a biomarker, 10% of patients have it, GBM, it'll take me five years to enroll all the patients at one site. But having right. a network, you can enroll all the patients in one year and get your answer and keep moving on and asking multiple and questions. Yeah, et cetera. So that, that's the power of a organized health system or network to do research is really to accelerate research like never before. And that's what I'm uh, super excited by. So translational medicine is really the intersection of medicine and science. So as we treat a patient in our clinic with any standard treatment or a clinical trial, we collect samples, whether it's the tumor tissue or the blood, and we kind of uh, do various testing to figure out why that patient responded or did not responded, or how the cancer changed over, over time. So it's really, it's, uh, there's, there's a hypothesis you can do in the lab, I can do tests test in animals, et cetera, and then uh, use that idea in the clinic. The other approach is, I'm already treating my patients in clinic, some patients are responding, some patients are not. I wanna learn about it, whether it's sequencing the tumor or whatever other marker I think is important in the immune system, and then I'm going to go back and see why this person responded, this person didn't. And we actually did this in, in many times over the years and identified mm-hmm. markers that helped us then, uh, dis- it's, it's called reverse science, basically, from, from the bedside to the bench. We validated in the lab, and then we went back to the clinic and did a prospective trial of using that marker and designed a better, uh, better trial to enrich for that marker and get a better response so i think that interaction of the basic science and the lab science is translational science and that's really something we need to spend more effort on because especially in glioblastoma where you know we're we're treating patients off label with combinations of drugs we should really be understanding you know whether they responded or not and that's really i think what a, again a, a network of uh, hospitals or a health system can do much better than an individual hospital and i think that's where the the number uh, the the power of numbers is important to to really identify what's what's a good drug or not and what the markers are
1: you know if you're listening to this and you know you haven't experienced a personal one of a loved one or friend or whatever and says like you know they got the treatments that was supposed to work and they just like spiraled or they just like everything you know nothing responded and they passed away quickly or it was bad if you're wondering that and you're frustrated that's, that is to your point, which is it's because we need to know and understand what are the extra additional variables on a much smaller level that account for that so that the next level of person in that similar circumstance won't have that, you know, the expectation of what usually happens and doesn't. Um, and I don't mean by error or anything else, but just, in, you know, so many other properties that we need to learn and understand. And that's what translation is. This is what we can you know observe in a lab. Does it work? Oh, sure enough, it does. And vice versa, also, this is what we understood, but this is not what's happening, evidence-based. Let's go back to the books and figure out, is there anything else we're missing? Dr. Kasari, this has been an absolute pleasure. I'm just, uh, you always, you know... Hearing you speak, I, I've listened to you previously. It always just inspires me to just, I just feel like I'm not, I'm not doing enough. I just like get up and I lose sleep and now I'm going to go back to the sleep because you just told me that that's actually very healthy uh, for that, you know, that kind of that clearance of my toxins. So that that's a big take-home piece. I hope everyone took that away, is that you're truly, the evidence has shown recently, you're truly hurting like a bunch of stuff and, and possible depression and, you know, muscle pains and all of this kind of stuff uh, with poor sleep. But that was just one of many, many points. And is there some message that you would like to leave with? Because I'm just going to be bugging you in the future. Because I just think yeah. I mean, you're just you're, yeah,
0: well, I Inspirational. think uh, I, you know, even though I've been doing this 20 plus years trying to cure brain tumors, I am actually even more excited and hopeful in the last few years than I've ever been by the innovative, I think we need to design clinical trials differently. But the awesome thing is there are so many drugs out there now, approved for other cancers and drugs in development. So we just need to get our act together in terms of, again, sequencing. What what is the makeup of the tumor? What makes the tumor tick? What drug or combination of drugs could help a particular patient? And then design a focused study because if you find that perfect combination, you don't need to do a 100 patient study. You may get an answer in 10 patients. And so I think the more understanding of the science, the drivers of uh, glioblastoma, the better drugs that we make the more opportunities to accelerate a cures for this disease and i and i am really excited i think for the next uh, five years or so that i think we're going to see a lot more progress uh happen faster than ever before because of the make advances and drug advances and and immunotherapy is huge and uh, i think it's going to have a role as well and also
1: because of you and everything you've done in your career thus far and is still ahead of you. Um, thank you so much. Seriously, it's an absolute honor. I hope other people are as inspired as I am, but also kind of have this, again, this humility of us as, you know, with our mortality and, and the complicated nature, and no pun intended, of science and, and everything. And what people are really doing and working hard um, to try to combat is really the biggest challenge of humankind as a whole when it relates to cancer. So thank you so much.
0: Absolutely happy to happy to uh, have this conversation with you and look forward to more Sanjay